Hello, welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday afternoon news hour. This is Jasmine, and I am here with my friends Janet and Saman. We're recording this on Saturday, January the 28th, and you'll hear it for the first time on Sunday, January 29th. It will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the 30th. So how are you guys doing? I'm doing great. How are you? How are you, Janet, before I... Oh, very well. I'm hanging in there. Well, you know, I say that every week. I I should do like a compilation of all the times I've said, I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging (laughs) in there. I did see that we're past the shortest days of the year, like kind of as a collective for the winter. So we'll start noticing a difference now in the longer sunshine. So that's optimistic. (laughs) That's nice. Yeah, I saw sunset is now officially after 5 p.m. Exactly. (laughs) Which is a great feeling. Yeah, we're definitely on, on our way to spring. And sadly, weirdly, you know, there has been no snow. Like, I get so sad whenever I see, uh, like, the New York City, like, uh, meteor, meteor, whatever that word is, the weather people. (laughs) When they talk about, like, it's the longest streak without measurable snowfall, it makes me so sad. Uh, Yeah, every time I hear that, too. And then apparently, like, you know, it was like 50-something degrees today. So we've been having, like, record above average temperatures, I think, so far. Yeah, I'm crossing my fingers next week we'll have some snow. Like the weather app was saying like there were three days they were calling for snow and now it's gone down to just one like Wednesday on Tuesday. Well, I'll wear my pajamas inside out and do the dance. (laughs) Is that the snow dance? (laughs) This is the the Long Island cultural baby. (laughs) I love it. You guys, you guys didn't have that wear pajamas inside out before the snowfall never i've never heard of this and what does that do exactly does it give you more snow it gives you more yeah it's supposed to get you a snow day oh see this is important cultural knowledge for our children (laughs) to to be passed on to the kids maybe it's been lost and that that explains it it doesn't have to do with the right that's right now you gotta like do something weird like put your iPad upside down or something because they just go remote these days. These days. Know, yeah. They don't even get a proper snow day, which is boo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So on this week's show, uh, in the local news segment, we'll be talking about a truck depot where a housing development was going to be in central Harlem. Uh, we'll be discussing for national news the... Um, murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. And for world news, we have an overview from NPR of recent Israeli-Palestinian violence. Uh, So first off, I have the local news story. And this is from The Gothamist, one of my favorite places to get local news. Uh, I'll read the majority of it. Some things have been cut for the sake of time. The title is New York Attorney General Weighs In, Harlem Truck Depot Could Be Illegal. And it was written by Arun Venugopal yesterday, January 27th, 2023. A months-long standoff between a Harlem council member and a developer over affordable housing has taken a new twist 
with Attorney General Letitia James contending in a letter that plans to instead operate a truck depot on the West 145th Street property could be unlawful. Based on information available to us, we are concerned that operations of the truck depot may constitute a public nuisance, James wrote in a January 25th letter to Bruce Tietelbaum, the CEO of RPG, giving him 10 days to provide details about the hours and expected traffic at the planned depot, which occupies land the builder previously eyed for housing. Tietelbaum did not immediately respond to a request for comment, and James' office had not yet received a reply to her letter, which cited a host of environmental and health concerns. The Park Your, Ple the Park Your Fleet truck depot represents a vast departure from Tietelbaum's original plans for the property between Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard and Lenox Avenue. He originally proposed a 900 39-unit residential high-rise complex, the $700 million 145, and agreed to terms that would have set aside 40% of the units for tenants earning half the area's medium, median income or less. While the terms were seen by some elected officials as reasonable, Council Member Kristen Richardson-Jordan, who represents the area, said she disagreed, and the negotiations fell apart resulting in Tietelbaum warning that if he could not build a high-rise, he'd find some other use for the land, which was formerly a gas station. By tradition, council members defer to the wishes of individual lawmakers on building projects in their districts. This is not the result we planned or hoped for on 145th Street, 145th Street Tietelbaum told the New York Times, which published an article about the controversy. But without someone who was willing to find common ground and compromise, we have no other viable alternative or choices. Jordan, a Democratic Socialist who describes herself on her council website as a third-generation Harlemite who has known Harlem since she was four months old, did not make herself available for an interview. However, she addressed the controversy on Instagram, writing, you cannot build a truck stop and we want actually affordable and low-income housing, while promoting a January 28th rally at what she called the scene of the crime truck stop. In her letter, James raised concerns about the potential increase in air pollution and warned Tietelbaum could be violating state and local prohibitions against idling. Air pollution is one of the most significant environmental threats to New Yorkers, contributing to approximately 6% of deaths annually, wrote James. Of particular concern, the surrounding neighborhood already suffers from a high rate of child hospitalization associated with pollution-induced asthma. On Twitter, Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine called the depot's opening unacceptable and indicated that the earlier terms had passed muster. The property is in a community where one in five residents lives below the poverty line, and nearly 40% of households are rent burdened, meaning they spend 35% or more of their income on rent. An upzoning at this site proposed last year would have allowed for 939 apartments, he wrote. My office stipulated that at least 50% of those units must be affordable. The final proposal, while not perfect, met this goal. 
In an interview with Gothamist, Levine said the community desperately needed affordable housing and the fact that the site now has a truck stop is absolutely outrageous. It is a perpetuation of decades and decades of environmental degradation in a neighborhood with elevated asthma rates, he said. We do not want a truck stop at 145th. We want housing there. While noting that Tietelbaum has not yet indicated much of an interest in trying again, Levine said he hoped the various sides could be brought together again. So yeah, like that's the, seems like the latest development on on this story is the fact that it could be blocked or redirected because of the attorney general. Uh, But had either of you heard about this before? I had not. I feel like I had heard about the truck depot, but I didn't know all the circumstances. Yeah, it's pretty awful that, um, you know, people are just beholden to this guy's whims of like, well, uh, you don't like what I'm doing, so I'm just going to screw everybody over. Yeah. Um, It's just uh, like, yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. Yeah, that was um like I know I had told Janet earlier that I've been trying to avoid uh reading the times as much as possible. Um but they did have a long read about this issue and one of the things mentioned was like it can set a precedent where these developers have the ability to kind of bully the city council members into doing what they want because they'll say like well i'll do this other like basically throw a tantrum and do some wildly like um damaging thing for that area if you don't go along with what they want to do with it and that's you know that's can lead to a lot of like manipulation i mean it's sort of like um what happened with well, 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 what they were trying to do with the Amazon deal, um, where they where Amazon got mad at AOC for trying to be like, you know, they need to pay more taxes unless we need to give less subsidies. Um, and they were like, well, we're just not going to come to New York. And they did this whole thing where they didn't come. And then two years later, apparently they did. They have a world headquarters now or not a world headquarters, but like a, a, an area now in Manhattan. That, so they're not in Queens, but they're still in New York. And it's uh, it's that same thing of, okay, well, now people are mad that, oh, those jobs that would have been in Queens are in Manhattan. But, I mean, honestly, we've seen what a drain Amazon is on federal and national state city resources in general and just what a scourge they are for, for the workers that they employ. So, you know, we're better off, but... It, it becomes this thing of people think, oh, you know, we're losing a benefit by not giving in to these people, these capitalists. Um, and yet, you know, when you don't give in, it actually is better for everybody in the end anyway. Uh, but this this looks like a, a really, I mean, if, if they can block the truck stop, I think that um, somebody else will come in. I think if, if they can block the truck stop, he will be willing to sell. Um, just to make his money back and somebody else can come in and build whatever needs to be built there. But um, yeah, right now it doesn't look good. I think that there's a way that these types of things get spun to then make the council member look like the bad guy, because it's like, we like, you can't argue with the idea that we do need housing. Like we have a crisis in the city with a lack of available housing, but 
in the long run, like I do think that she's correct. Cause even in the times article, which um, let me go up so I can say who the authors are. It's Emma G. Fitzsimmons and Mihir Zaveri. Uh, they wrote why Harlem is getting a truck depot instead of new housing. And one of the things that they mentioned is that um, in the most recent proposal, um, 10% of the 915 apartments would be affordable to seniors and people at risk of homelessness, including those with a family of four who earn up to $40,020 per year. However, some 13% of the apartments considered quote unquote affordable would have targeted families earning closer to Mm -hmm. $160,000. And I think that there's a lot of talk of like, oh, you need to compromise, but I think it's important to remember that if you are, if every year you're compromising, you're slowly and steadily like moving closer and closer to what you don't want. Because like when you think about the median income, the more you allow these expensive like luxury type buildings where usually you have people who are not from the city who have higher uh, upper income limits coming in that raises what the median income even is. So like you're slowly and steadily creating like a less, like more uh, white, more upper class environment. And you are still having displacement Mm -hmm. of the current residents that need housing the most desperately. It's just, it might not be Mm -hmm. happening quite as quickly, but it's still happening at a very steady clip. Yeah, when when I heard the word high rise and talking about having affordable housing, I was kind of cynical from the get go because, you know, just whenever I see these high rises going up like here in Queens or other parts of the city, they don't seem like places that would offer low income housing. And like you're saying, you know, the the person trying to promote the construction of the building might pitch it in such a way that it sounds like a proportion are low income. But I don't know of examples where it actually plays out where these fancy glass buildings have all sorts of people going into them. And you and I, Jasmine, have talked about how there are a lot of not full buildings on account of these high rises going up for only the few who can afford them. For sure. I mean, that's a huge crisis in New York right now is that there's all these empty apartments and it's actually one of the driving forces for the the whole like going back into the office for work thing that Eric Adams keeps pushing because it's like all these people, all these richer people left and bought property outside of the city um, because they could work remote and, uh, you know, have space and leave those luxury apartments um, empty as, you know, long as they wanted to and now it's like i think it's what what did they say there's something like 300,000 apartments that are empty or 30,000 apartments that are empty um and it it they did the numbers and it's like every single homeless person could fit in the number of empty apartments there are in new york yeah and it's like and it shows you like these are people who are willing to they have money to burn or like to sit and wait until things go their way but in the meantime you have people steadily being evicted and pushed more into the cycle of homelessness or at least housing instability like being rent burdened like 
they mentioned that's 35% of your income if you're spending it on rent. But in that part of Harlem, I think it's closer. Like there's people that are paying like half of what they earn or more uh, just on rent. Yeah. I mean, like an entire paycheck going just to rent is very common. Yeah, um, for sure. And like, according to the NYU Furman Center um, in central Harlem, in the year 2000, the median ha- household income was $35,000 and th- $35,340. So that means half of the people in the area made less than that. Half of the people made more than that. And in tw- 2019, that number went up to $57,720. So you can see 20 years sounds long, but it's not really that long. And we see how the median income has already shot up, which definitely represents, you know, some amount of displacement. And it's going to keep going up because then even with these luxury buildings, when they're like, oh, well, a portion of it is affordable, it's like, what are you comparing that to? Like affordable compared to like the richest people in the nice penthouse? Yeah, exactly. Or affordable for real. I think the cost of living for New York City right now is if you want want to live in a one-bedroom apartment by yourself, you have to be making at least 75,000. So if the median income is 57,000, I mean, right there, you got the housing crisis in in two numbers (laughs) laid out. We'll see how this goes, how this develops. We'll see what the attorney general ends up deciding, what the response is. Uh, So for our first musical break, this is a song by a band called The Specials, um, and one of their members recently passed away, Terry Hall. Uh, This song is Ghost Town. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And here's Saman with our national news story. Um, as you guys may have heard, uh, the Memphis Police Department just released video of the killing of Tyree Nichols. Um, I'm sharing an article from the Associated Press that was published today, Saturday, January 28th. Um, written by Adam Beam, Travis Lohler, and Claire Galafaro um, about Tyree Nichols. Tyree Nichols remembered as beautiful soul with creative eye. On most weekends, Tyree Nichols would head to the city park, train his camera on the sky, and wait for the sun to set. Photography helps me look at the world in a more creative way. It expresses me in ways I cannot write down for people, he wrote on his website. He preferred landscapes and loved the glow of sunsets most, his family has said. My vision is to bring viewers deep into what I'm seeing through my eye and out through my lens, Nichols wrote. People have a story to tell. Why not capture it? Nichols, a 29-year-old father, was on his way home from taking pictures of the sky on January 7th when police pulled him over. He was just a few minutes from the home he shared with his mother and stepfather when he was brutally attacked by five Memphis police officers. He died three days later at a hospital, and the officers have since been charged with second-degree murder and other offenses. Nobody's perfect, nobody, but he was damn near, his mother, Rovon Wells, said at a news conference this week, moments after she watched the video of her son being beaten. He was damn near perfect. He was the baby of their family, born 12 years after his closest siblings. He had a four-year-old son and worked hard to better himself as a father, his family said. He was an avid skateboarder from Sacramento, California, and came to Memphis just before the coronavirus pandemic and got stuck. But he was fine with it because he was with his mother, and they were incredibly close, Wells said. He had her name tattooed on his arm. Friends at a memorial service this week described him as joyful and lovable. This man walked into a room and everyone loved him, said Angelina Paxton, a friend who traveled to Memphis from California for the service. Growing up in Sacramento, Nichols spent much of his time at a skate park on the outskirts of the city. It could be a rough place sometimes for younger kids. But when Nico Chapman was 10 years old, his parents would let him walk to the park alone as long as they knew Nichols was there. You remember people that are kind to you, and Tyree was just a really kind person, Chapman said. He just always made me feel really welcome. There was a Bible study on Thursdays that Nichols would attend with his friend Brian Jang. The last time Jang saw Nichols was in 2018 at the food court in a local mall. The two hadn't seen each other in a while, but Jang said Nichols came up behind him and gave him a big hug as the two caught up. It's honestly pretty devastating to see such a good human go through such unnecessary brutality, such unnecessary death, Jang said. His mother said she raised him to love everyone openly until they give you a reason not to. So Nichols was quick to make friends. Nichols worked second shift at FedEx with his stepfather. Every day, they'd come home together on their break at 7 p.m., and his mother would have a meal waiting for them. 
Wells said she'd offered to buy her son Jordans, the popular athletic shoes, but he didn't want them. He was just his own person, she said. He didn't follow what anyone else was doing. When he wasn't working, he went to the park to skateboard and take pictures. His website, called This California Kid, starts with an invitation. Welcome to the world through my eyes. He highlights a quote from another photographer. A good photographer must love life, it begins. After she watched the video of her son's death, Wells stood with her family and their lawyers at a lectern, shaking to convey what the world lost. A lawyer described the beating shown in the video, and Wells turned her head away, burying her face into her hands. In the video footage, which was released Friday to the public, Nichols is heard saying he just wants to go home, family lawyers said. He was less than 100 yards from his mother's house. Lawyers describe the last words Nichols is heard saying calling for his mom three times. She still finds herself waiting for him to walk in the door every day at 7 p.m. It's a pretty intense moment, I think, for the country right now, and this particularly, obviously, for his family. Um, I didn't watch the footage. I think it's unnecessary to to watch it um, to understand the full gravity of, of what's happened. Um, I think, um, you know, it's important that we understand that this was a human being that was lost. And that's why I chose this article as opposed to all the other ones about, you know, the actual traffic stop that led to his death um, and all the different ways that everyone is taking it apart and analyzing it and using official police um, statements to describe what happened. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think we just need to kind of take a moment and acknowledge that a human being was lost in a really brutal way in a preventable way yeah i i definitely i don't watch things like that um i decided a long time ago like i don't watch videos of people losing their life but yeah thank you for reading that because it it is important like you're more than the worst thing that happened to you um, and he had a full life, not a long life, but he was a full person. And uh, I know his loved ones want us to remember who he was in life and not um, the way his life was taken from him. Yeah, 100%. And I think you said this very well, Saman, but it's it's important to focus on his life and not, and not the details leading up to this incident because, it, you know, they're irrelevant. Nobody deserves the treatment and the violence that he endured. Yeah, 100%. And I think um, this goes back to that conversation that everybody keeps on having about police reform. You know, oh, like these cops were also people of color. They were black and, and this whole thing. And it, and they try to make this into an, an incident that's, you know, specific to these individuals, um, that they were the violent ones and and they try to divorce the blame from the institution um, by overanalyzing that that whole situ- like the actual situation when it's when it's lar- part of this larger narrative. Like you know, Jasmine, you were saying that like y- you've lost track of the names because there are so many. At what point do we kind of finally acknowledge that this is 
a problem with the entire institution. Exactly. Um, and, and, and no reforms are going to stop it. No reforms are going to change what that institution is built on and why it is what it is. Um, you know, people always talk about, oh, the few bad apples. And it's like the whole quote is a few bad apples spoil the entire bunch. That's a spoiled bunch. Time to toss it. Sorry, right. I'm a little bit emotional, but I think this calls for emotion. I think this moment calls for emotion. And the fact that there were four individuals and not one of them stopped what was happening. They Wasn't all it five. I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. five individuals. So even worse. Right. It's not one of them started to do something and the others looked away. It's five of them involved in this brutality. And we've seen it again and again with the police department that it's a place that fosters brutality. Exactly. I mean, um, there's been multiple lawsuits from people um, who were former cops saying that they were told to be more brutal, that when they didn't go along with brutality, that they were marginalized or harassed at work. Um, it's like there are no good cops because the people who are good people who become cops end up leaving because they can't be continue to be good people. Like, period. I really, you know, people should think about how in this country we have a history with like lynching photography and people would circulate images of black death and torture like baseball cards. And that was up through, I want to say the fifties, if not later than that. Um, we have people that will go like the weapon that was used like to kill Trayvon Martin, like people had like auctions for that and like sell merch and stuff to celebrate like the murder <laughs> of a black child. Like every time, like every time they try to redo uh, Emmett Till's memorial, like there's a bunch of kids, like to, like white children and white adults that will shoot it up to deface it. So the idea of it, it really made me sick to my stomach the way the release of this video was talked about and treated like it was a damn music video or something. Right. Like it, and the hyping up of it, you know, because yes, there's people that are emotional and they get upset or disturbed, but unfortunately, there's people that get like get off on that or like they like to see certain groups of people brutalized. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't see that if it were someone beating up a dog, right? No, but right. for a human being, like that's what we see. It's just, oh, it just it makes me so like I've just been. I haven't even been reading a lot about it because I know it would make me upset. I mean, it is upsetting. And, and the thing is, is that we shouldn't become desensitized to it. I mean, as painful as it is, I feel like the fact that we feel this way just from hearing the news and hearing whatever scant details that we do here shows our humanity. And we need to preserve that and we need to not become cold to it um, because that's the only way that this is going to stop. The more of us who are upset about it, um, calling for, I mean, I'm going to say it, defunding the police. Like, they do not deserve to have the amount of power and money and weapons that they have. That it's a, it, They are the threat to public safety. They are not preserving yeah. public They are the threat. They are killing. I think there were almost 1,200 people killed by the police last year. 
in 2022 alone. 1,200 people. It's just, well, you know, at what point do we do we acknowledge that they are an actual scourge upon this country? I think it, the conversation um, keeps on getting derailed by talking points. Um, and so people don't really understand what life without police could look like or without this this level of intervention could look like. I mean, why do you need five people at a traffic stop? Why do you need police at a traffic stop at all? You know, why do you need weapons at a traffic stop at all? What is what purpose do they serve? It's it's just a really kind of strange thing that we've accepted as normal um, in the same way that, you know, we've accepted all the other things that are killing us as normal. Yeah, and I, I like the point that you made about um, people are focusing on the race of the perpetrators and it's also like it reminds me because between the last time the three of us were on and now like there was a shooting in Monterey in California there was another shooting in Half Moon Bay and there were people that were hyped up about the fact that the shooters were not white that they were also Asian it's like that isn't the point like we have an out of control problem with gun violence particularly from men in this country, whatever race they are. And it it shouldn't be like, oh, well, see, nothing to see here because it's not like they were from the same community. It's like there's a bigger overarching problem here that is not being addressed and it's worsening rapidly. And no one is immune from it because of the color of their skin. For sure. I mean, they don't realize that this is all like, the the sort of um, components of white supremacy that that minority populations are adopting because they want to feel powerful. I mean, you know, when you're part of a group that is marginalized, you know, you're 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 gonna feel like, how do I get power? And it's I'm gonna become a cop. I'm gonna buy a gun. You know, I'm going to be as close to, you know, whiteness or this, you know, white supremacist ideology as possible so that I can become a part of that power structure. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, I wanted to share something uh, that was written by Lene O'Neill. It appeared in National Geographic And this was after George Floyd was murdered by police. Um, And also that was not all white people that were present when he was killed either. Like one of the, at least one of the cops was non-white and his mother had died already, but George Floyd is another person we know who cried out for his mother. Um, And the title of the article was George Floyd's mother was not there, but he used her as a sacred invocation. Uh, This is an excerpt from what Lene O'Neill wrote. I was in the delivery room with my son, in pain with no medication, save the ones that magnified my contractions. As my vision narrowed, I focused on a point above me, and I heard the nurses talking about me as if I wasn't there. I stared at the ceiling, and over and over, I called out for my mother. There are moments when it feels like life hangs in the balance, and in those moments, we want to go back to the beginning, when we were known. 
Mama, Floyd, 46, calls out. Mama, I'm through, the dying man says, and I recognize his words. A call to your mother is a prayer to be seen. You know, I just hearing about the way uh, Tyree died, it just, it took me back to when I first read that article and it's words fail at this point, but uh, rest in peace to him and sending love and support to his family and loved ones. I just wanted to add to that prayer for his family. Okay. So for our next musical break, this song is I Hung My Head by Johnny Cash. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Early one morning with time to kill, I borrowed Jeb's rifle and sat on the hill. I saw a lone rider crossing the plain. I drew a bead on him to practice my aim. My brother's rifle went off in my hand. A shot rang out across the land. The horse he kept running, the rider was dead. I hung my head, I hung my head. I set off running to wake from the dream. My brother's rifle went into the sheen. I kept on running into the Southlands. That's where they found me, my head in my hands. The sheriff, he asked me, why had I run? And then it came to me, just what I had done. And all for no reason, just one piece of lead. I hung my head, I hung my head. Here in the courthouse, the whole town was there. I see the judge high up in his chair. Explain to the courtroom what went through your mind. And we'll ask the jury what verdict they find. I felt the power of death over life. I orphaned his children. I widowed his wife. I beg their forgiveness. I wish I was dead. I hung my head. I hung my head. I hung my head. Early one morning with time to kill I see the gallows up on the hill And out in the distance a trick of the brain I see a lone rider crossing the plain and he'd come to fetch me to see what they done And we'll ride together till kingdom come 
I pray for God's mercy, cause soon I'll be dead. I hung my head, I hung my head, I hung my head, I hung my head. If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and now we have Janet with our world news story. The article I'll be reading from is called, Here's What's Driving the Latest Spiral of Israeli-Palestinian Violence. It was published on January 28th on the NPR.org website, and it was written by Daniel Estrin and Larry Kaplow. Tel Aviv, Israel. What's often summed up as the cycle of violence in Jerusalem and the West Bank has suddenly surged to levels not seen in years. Thursday marked the deadliest Israeli army operation in the occupied West Bank since at least 2005. Troops killed nine Palestinians, including gunmen and a 61-year-old woman during a raid against suspects in the crowded Janine refugee camp. Dozens more were injured. Friday marked the deadliest Palestinian attack against Israelis since 2008. A Palestinian gunman killed seven people and wounded three outside a synagogue in an Israeli settlement neighborhood of Jerusalem at the start of the Jewish Sabbath. Saturday saw another Palestinian shooting outside an Israeli settlement enclave in Jerusalem, wounding two. Not every attack can be tied to another, but here's what may be driving this surge in violence. Israel's 10-month crackdown in the West Bank. A series of fatal attacks by Palestinians on Israelis last year prompted a sweeping Israeli military campaign dubbed Operation Breakwater, beginning March 31st. Since then, nearly every day, Israel has conducted raids in the Israeli-occupied West Bank to arrest suspected militants and round up weapons. Nearly every week, Palestinians have been killed. It has resulted in the highest cumulative death toll in the West Bank since 2004. Nearly 150 Palestinians were killed by Israeli troops last year, according to Israeli human rights group B'Tselem. That includes gunmen, but also uninvolved citizens and young Palestinians who were throwing stones at troops. It also includes Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, also killed in the Janine refugee camp. Israel says she was probably killed by a soldier's gunfire unintentionally. The weakening of Palestinian security forces. Palestinian security forces are trained by the U.S. and international forces to patrol the West Bank, 
round up Palestinian militants, and coordinate with Israeli officials to prevent attacks on Israelis. But those forces have lost a lot of legitimacy among their own people. Many Palestinians see them as doing Israel's bidding, maintaining Israel's military occupation rather than resisting it. Increasingly, pockets of the West Bank have become no-go zones for the Palestinian Authority forces, who now either refuse to enter or find it too dangerous. That includes the Janine Refugee Camp, a dense district of concrete buildings and home to many armed militant groups dedicated to fighting Israel. Israel says it's stepping in to fill the void and has intensified its arrest raids in these densely populated areas. Its troops are met by emboldened gunmen with groups like Hamas, Islamic Jihad, or newer militant groups, leading to deadly clashes. After Israel's raid Thursday, the Palestinian Authority said it was officially suspending its U.S.-supervised security cooperation with Israel, but it's unclear to what extent that will take place. Israel's half-century occupation shows no sign of ending. Palestinian leaders want to establish an independent state in the West Bank, but Israel has occupied the West Bank for nearly 56 years and continues to deepen its grip on it. It says Palestinians are not ready to make peace with Israel and that the occupation is a security necessity, but it has also allowed and supported hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers across the West Bank, and the new far-right government vows to legalize dozens of small settlement outposts deep in the heart of the territory, making it harder to envision a future Palestinian state there. Younger Palestinians have grown up not knowing anything but Israel's tough permit regime, which controls Palestinians' entry and movement, and some of their own interactions with Israelis are often hostile settlers or occupation-enforcing soldiers who often raise their, raid their homes and jail people for months without charges. Some young Palestinians see violent resistance against Israel as their only viable path to freedom, with young militants lionized on social media. As Palestinian leadership weakens, Israel's far-right surges. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, 87, one of the Middle East's oldest leaders, has lost the support of most Palestinians, according to polls. He has tried to promote Palestinian independence through nonviolence and diplomatic negotiations with Israel, but that approach has failed. In the 19th year of what was supposed to be a four-year term, Abbas has lost control of Gaza to the militant Hamas, called off elections for new leadership, allowed government corruption to thrive, and not laid out a clear future for Palestinians. On the flip side, Israel's long-term leader, Benjamin Netanyahu is backed as prime minister with a far-right coalition that has laid out a plan for deepening its grip on the West Bank and taking tougher action against Palestinians. Only one month in office, the government has sparked a series of controversies, including over the status of the sensitive Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in Jerusalem. Israeli officials are already prepping for a tense month of April, when Ramadan and Passover coincide, a combustible mix for potential religious and nationalistic-fueled violence. A really intense situation, and the way that your article laid it out, 
I, I felt like I'm reading, you know, a narrative of some dystopian novel. It's so intense. It really is. And some of the other articles I were I was looking at um, were talking about the current right-wing regime that's been in charge of Israel for just about a month now. And um, one thing that particularly frightened me was the talk um, of government officials, Israeli government officials wanting to lax uh, the weapon the, the accessibility of weapons so that more Israelis can arm themselves. That was one of the solutions, quote unquote, solutions they were talking about. And the other thing that really frightened me was the fact that the head of the police um, was known for being so extremist that he was not allowed to be in the military of Israel in the 90s. And he is said to have had um, a picture of the murderer of um, Palestinians from a 1994 attack. So these are the people who are now kind of have big, powerful positions in Israel at the moment. No, that's that's scary. Right-wing forces, like I think whatever government you're in, like they will use, they will never waste an opportunity to like push the agenda even further to the right. Yeah, and just the numbers that, it cited uh, this article had said 150 Palestinians were killed last year. Another article said closer to one, 170. So I mean, you're you know you're you're terrorizing people, and and then you're you're proposing uh, further measures to kind of create a situation of violence to stop the violence. That doesn't sound like it's actually going to work, and. I think at least one of the killers in the violence last week was a 13-year-old Palestinian boy um, whose grandfather had been previously killed by um, the Israeli. So, you know, there's these familial legacies of the violence, and it's just, um, it's heartbreaking to see and to know what's going to happen next. I mean, it's it's so. Um, I think what what the irony is is that you know Israel was supposedly created as a safe haven after the Holocaust, and yet you know after having suffered as a community, the Israeli government uses that suffering to then justify violence against a completely unrelated population. Yeah. without recognizing that they're doing exactly what was done to them. Um, and that, that, that kind of thing is just like heartbreaking to me. Um, and I know, obviously I know that there are um, liberal elements um, within Israel who are fighting against this, like you mentioned, B'Tselem, and, and they were the first ones to, to sort of call out the apartheid policies of the Zionist government. And so they are working from the inside. All these protests against Netanyahu's re-election. There's a there was a huge, huge protest, um, like his first or second week in office, um, because they were going to sort of strip the judiciary of their power um, to prosecute cases like this, you know, of of overreach. So um, you know, it's just 
the way that right wing energy kind of takes over people's anger and and uses it so brutally is really terrifying. Yeah, and like I, you mentioned the Holocaust. Like we just uh, yesterday, the twenty seventh was the Holocaust Remembrance Day. Or even in the article, they mentioned that soon we're going to be like Passover and Ramadan are going to somewhat overlap, and it's really, you know, these should be times of like reflection and celebrating and being within your community, and the fact that you almost have to you get anxious about there being escalations during this time, like when people are in their places of worship, you know, it's really, it's, it's terrible to live that way. Yeah. Instead of seeing it as an opportunity um, for, for sort of shared reflection, it becomes a, a, a powder keg for conflict, which is just, like you said, just really sad. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. And it's like you, it's the regular everyday people that suffer, you know, while the people at the top who are, you know, making these decisions, like the wide sweeping policies are doing whatever they're doing. It's, you know, you could be, you're praying with your family, you're going shopping, you're playing in the street with your friends, and then your life is over. Um, as a result of this and the fact that it's been going on so long is, you know, longer than any of the three of us have been alive. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's disheartening, mm-hmm. you know, and some of these leaders have been in place for so long and we don't seem to be getting closer to like peace, a peaceful re- like resolution. No. And they're talking about kind of, you know, there was, shared information and somewhat of a shared effort between um, Palestinian forces and Israeli forces. And they're talking about ending those commitments. Um, And obviously this violence and history of violence predates the current current administration, but it just seems like the current administration is in their position because people are angry and, you know the the people propped up now are are trying to cater to their the people who voted them in office and those are people who are demanding more violence so it's it's kind of a a terrible feedback loop that they're entering into here oh yeah i mean it, it definitely cuz this is not an issue that growing up was explained to me clearly or taught to me in school so i think in recent years like there's been more coverage in the mainstream news that I've been aware of. And I do think that the article you read, I like that it seemed to give a, it's a broad overview, but it does give you some idea of like, oh, I should read up more on like, what is this or who is this person? And like, what is their um, history to have a better understanding or a better grasp of like what the dynamics are? Exactly. And I would encourage people to check it out because it kind of has little subtitles and like Jasmine saying you could kind of follow up on each of those to get it's obviously a very complicated situation with a long history so it's hard to jump in in the middle and understand it all yeah I mean I think it does kind of go back to the to the national article that we were discussing in terms of the way of of violence being connected to power and 
and people feeling powerless. And so, you know, taking this easy feeling of, of victory by, by perpetuating violence or escalating violence. Um, and it's unfortunate that we haven't learned to, to sort of reason our way out of that and understand how to solve our problems and, and that feeling of powerlessness without it. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely terrible, like to all of the victims um, and their loved ones, like very sad news that this is ongoing and people are continuing to um, be taken from this world. So hopefully like soon, like this won't be just a fact of life that this is continuing, but it seems unfortunately we're in the, we're, we're going into an intensified stage. So you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Please stay tuned for more community-based local radio. And uh, for our last song, this is Yesterday by Donnie Hathaway. Um, have a good rest of your Sunday and have a good week. Bye. Trouble seems so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Yesterday came suddenly Such an easy game to play 